welcome to semester four, episode 10 of our Just Admit It podcast, where former deans and directors of admission give expert insight into the complex college admissions landscape. I'm Carolyn, a college admissions counselor at Ivy Wise and former admissions counselor at Vanderbilt University. And joining me today are my friends and fellow Ivy Wise colleagues, Tasha, a college admissions counselor also at Ivy Wise and former admissions officer at USC, uh, as well as Krista, who's a former admissions officer at Johns Hopkins University. We can't emphasize enough the importance of building a balanced college list of 10 to 15 target, reach, and likely schools. Uh, so in this episode, we're going to discuss the different types of universities that students should consider. So if you're a student who's starting the process of searching for colleges or building your application list, you know that it can be really overwhelming. Uh, there are nearly 4,000 colleges and universities across the United States, uh, and that's not even taking into account your international options. So even if you narrow those schools down to the schools that you're academically qualified for or the schools that are in your immediate area, that could still leave hundreds of diverse options for you to choose from. Uh, so to start this process, we recommend that students think about the types of colleges that you're most interested in attending, which gives you a much more manageable list of schools to research, learn about, apply to, and ultimately choose from. Now, college types can be defined and prioritized in a lot of different ways, depending on your goals and your preferences. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit today about the several different ways colleges can be categorized to help you think through your options and start deciding which college types will be the best match for you. So I'm happy to chime in here and talk about the difference between a four-year institution and a two-year institution. So students who attend a two-year institution will earn an associate's degree, and those who attend a four-year institution are awarded bachelor's degrees. Students can transfer into four-year institutions once they've earned their associate's degree if they would like to go for their bachelor's. In general, though, community colleges see lower gradu graduation rates for a ton of reasons, including remedial course requirements, lack of advising, lack of on-campus community, or personal or financial obstacles that students may have outside of school. That said, community colleges are an option and many states are beginning to fund free community college programs to increase graduation rates. But for the sake of today's podcast, we'll be mainly talking about those four-year colleges and universities. And so speaking of which, we hear the terms colleges and universities a lot and they're often used interchangeably, but they don't actually necessarily mean the same thing. So universities have both undergraduate and graduate degree programs, while colleges tend to offer only undergraduate level programs. Colleges can refer to an undergraduate school within a university. So for instance, the College of Arts and Sciences at Carolyn's alma mater, Vanderbilt. Um, and because many colleges and universities have grown and changed over time, this general rule may not apply 100% of the time. And the two terms, like I said, have become have become really uh, synonymous with one another in modern usage, but you can now count yourself as one of the educated few who can properly distinguish among them. So you're very welcome for that. <laughs> um, but another thing that I wanna talk about too is nonprofit and for-profit. 
I knew when I was in high school, I didn't fully understand the difference. So the majority of institutions in higher ed in America are nonprofits. So that means that their main goal is to spread knowledge rather than to make money. These schools put all of their earnings back into running the institutions. On the other hand, for-profits are run by private businesses and have the goal of making money. So while some for-profit colleges may be a viable option for a specific population, you should know that these colleges are aiming to maximize the amount of money that you are giving them and are less concerned about your learning or your graduation. So for this reason, students who enroll at a for-profit institution tend to wind up with a higher amount of student loan debt if they manage to even graduate at all. So that's really important to know when you're looking at colleges, just see if it's nonprofit versus for-profit. Um, another thing to look at is public versus private. So it depends on how the school is funded. So a public college or university is mainly funded or operated by the government and private institutions are mainly funded through endowments, investments, and tuition. So an example of a public institution would be the UC system. So like UC LA, UC Berkeley, et cetera. Um, an example of a private institution would be Ivy League institutions like Princeton, Harvard, et cetera. Um, and when you're looking at public schools, it's also important to look at in-state versus out-of-state. So because state universities are funded mainly from the government, they have often a commitment to serve to their local residents. Private colleges, on the other hand, generally do not give discounts to in-state students or have that same level of commitment. So because of that, public colleges often have a certain percentage of the class that they're aiming or even mandated to have be from within the state. So for example, um, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, their freshman class, um, over 80% of their freshman class is from North Carolina. Um, so as I also briefly mentioned, public colleges give a discount to in-state students. So for example, it would be more expensive for a student from Maryland to, a pen, to attend Penn State versus a Pennsylvania resident. If you hear the term flagship school, uh, that typically means the oldest or the most well-known college in a state. It's just kind of a colloquial term. So, for example, the University of Kentucky in Kentucky would be its flag flagship state school. Uh, it's important to note that because they can't be really mean by specialized mission or focus, that could be art focus or tech or a military academy or anything like that. So um, I've spoken a lot. So I'm going to turn it over to Tasha. Uh, Tasha, would you mind talking more about the different focuses that institutions can have? Of course. Thank you, Krista. So yes, uh, colleges and universities can have different kinds of specializations uh, or missions. Uh, and we're just going to start off here with different kinds of missions. So we have um, research universities, for example, uh, which can include kind of what you might consider the quote unquote name brand colleges like the Ivy League and other um, top universities across the country that are really focusing on research um, as 
kind of one of the dominant opportunities for students to get involved uh, in their chosen academic fields and working with um, you know, experts in those fields, their professors, uh, through the completion of different research projects and uh, working with graduate students as well. Um, so a school that operates, so a school that is considered a research university um, is one that operates at the highest level of academic research, um, and they might be designated a research one university. So there are different designations there. You know, their main mission or one of their central missions, in addition to, of course, uh, educating students, is uh, research and research production. Remembering that research. Um, can happen in any field. Um, it can go beyond the sciences and the natural and the beyond the natural sciences and social sciences and definitely go into the humanities and other fields. Um, so if you are interested in that kind of learning, I mean, you're going to be doing research no matter what, but a research university might give you kind of extra uh, or additional opportunities to really focus on that. Uh, then there's the Liberal Arts College uh, as another kind of specialization. Um, many people confuse the Liberal Arts with the humanities, humanities being history, English, philosophy, foreign languages, uh, or think that only small schools are liberal arts colleges, but that's actually not the case. Uh, the term liberal arts more generally means that colleges are aiming to help students gain a more broad knowledge base and a set of skills rather than prepare them for a specific job or profession. And so actually most, if not all American colleges and universities do have a liberal arts option or even a liberal arts requirement, usually um, general education requirements uh, are kind of a liberal arts base. So where you're required to take courses that um, fulfill a different set of requirements that are going to fulfill a different set of, um, you know, basic knowledge like quantitative, et cetera. Um, so an example is Krista's alma mater, for example, Johns Hopkins is a medium-sized research and liberal arts university located in Baltimore. Uh, it has academic disciplines that span across engineering, natural science, math, humanities, and the social sciences. So it does have the liberal arts, even though it's also a research university. Then another example that's on the other end of things that I think is what most people think about is my alma mater, which is Bowdoin College, which is a small liberal arts college that really does have that focus um, and is not a research university. So just making sure that you keep in mind that you can pursue the liberal arts at many different kinds of institutions. Um, another mission example are arts colleges. Uh, so for example, like fashion institutes, design institutes, music conservatories, uh, theater conservatories, et cetera. So these are different schools that are really focusing on that visual performing or performing art. Um, and typically again, is going to have um, some, some requirements in, in the liberal arts as well, but is going to really focus on those uh, visual or performing arts disciplines. Then there's institutes of technology or tech, uh, which are going to be schools that are really focusing on technical uh, disciplines like engineering, computer science, um, game design and that kind of thing, but also business, uh, math, different kind of hard science uh, programs, but then typically also offer uh, 
majors in other fields like the humanities and so on. They're just really going to be specializing in those technological fields. And then finally, uh, we have military academies. Um, so that's a very uh, specialized kind of academy. It's a way to get your education in tandem with military service. Uh, typically, there's a military service requirement after you complete your education. Um, and then you're actually able to enter the military at a higher rank than if you had gone straight into the military. So that's an option if that's something that you're already considering um, and want to get your education beforehand. So another way that you can break down different categories of colleges is by thinking about the type and the makeup of the student body that that college serves. Um, so for example, a lot of students are looking for schools of a specific student body size. Uh, we talk about student body size, we generally put things into three categories, small schools, medium schools, and large schools. Um, as a general rule, small schools are usually less than 3,000 students. Uh, medium school is gonna be somewhere between 3,000 and 10 or 15,000 students. And then if it's over 15,000 students, that's considered to be a large school. Um, when we talk about number of students, we're typically talking about the number of undergraduate students, but it's helpful to be aware of whether or not there is a graduate student population at that school as well. When you think about small schools, so those schools with uh, under 3,000 undergraduate students, there are a lot of benefits to attending a really small school. You'll typically have smaller classes, smaller student to faculty ratio. A lot of those classes are going to be conversational seminar style classes with maybe only as few as eight to 10 students, up to maybe 30 students. Um, students who attend small schools tend to have really strong relationships with their professors, get lots of one on one time with them, as well as their academic advisors and any other other support services that are offered. Um, there tends to be a really tight-knit student community at these schools because there are only a smaller number of students, um, and there tends to be less competition for academic and extracurricular opportunities because there just aren't as many students for you to compete with for those opportunities. On the opposite side, when you're looking at really large schools, there are also some benefits to attending a large school as well. You're going to have a much wider variety of academic majors, of research opportunities, of extracurricular opportunities, of student supports, of resources. Where there are more students, there are more faculty, there are more programs, there are more, a more diverse range of opportunities in general. Um, if you're the kind of student that doesn't love one-on-one -on -one attention, really enjoy like the ability to sort of get lost in the crowd and, and embrace that anonymity, a large school could be a good option for you. Um, there are often honors colleges that are available and other targeted student communities, so opportunities for you to find your sort of smaller community within the larger college environment. Um, they tend to have larger, more diverse student bodies. Uh, large schools are more likely to have Division I sports teams, a lot of like school spirit and pride, and of course, a larger alumni base because there are more students. Um, of course, there are exceptions to all of these, but in general, those are things that you will typically find at a large school. If you're looking at a medium school, so somewhere in between that 3,000 to 10 or 15,000 range, um, you'll often find sort of a mixture of those different benefits. Um, so, for example, I attended a college that was made up of about 6,000 undergraduate students. And so some of my classes were really small and some of them were large. Uh, I had close relationships with some of my professors, but not all of them. There was a pretty good variety of like very high quality academic departments, but certainly not every single academic topic under the sun was covered. 
Um, competition for some opportunities was steep, but for others, not so much. There was Greek life and athletic events, but not everyone was into both of those things. So there's just kind of a good mix of all those benefits of small schools and large schools that we talked about. You might have an idea in your head right now of what type of school size would be the best fit for you, but we always encourage students to visit a variety of different campus types because you never know what type of environment might really hit the spot for you when you're on campus. Another type of student body that you may want to think about uh, is one that you will find at a religiously affiliated college. Uh, so many schools that were founded, founded by or in partnership with religious organizations have an official religious affiliation. Uh, of course, the extent to which this affiliation impacts the student experience is going to vary from school to school. Uh, so in some cases, a religious affiliation means that students are required or encouraged to take religiously themed classes or attend religious services. Uh, so, for example, Belmont University in Nashville is a non-denominational Christian college, and all students are required to complete a religious course as part of their liberal arts core curriculum requirements. In some cases, a religious affiliation means that the college is looking for a person of strong faith as part of the admissions process, which means that the majority of the student body shares in that same faith. Uh, these schools are a really great opportunity for someone for whom their faith is a really important part of their life and of their education, and they want to continue learning with that faith-based community at the college level. That doesn't necessarily mean that students outside of that particular faith can't attend or would be unhappy at these schools, but it's important to be aware of how the affiliation might impact the student experience. Um, in other cases, a religious affiliation is more of a historical technicality or like a fun fact than an actual significant part of the college experience. Uh, so if you're looking at religiously affiliated colleges, it's always a good idea to talk to current students and find out how much that affiliation impacts uh, the course requirements, the extracurricular options, the living options, and just the overall campus environment. Another category of schools you might consider is single-sex colleges. Uh, so while most college and colleges and universities are open to admission from both men and women, some schools are designed specifically for single-sex student bodies. Uh, there is a group of highly selective liberal arts colleges that have all female student populations. They're called the Seven Sisters, although there are now actually only five of them. Uh, this group includes Wellesley College, Mount Holyoke, Smith College, Bryn Mawr, and Barnard. Uh, there is a variety of other less selective women's colleges that can be found throughout the country, several of which are located in the South. Uh, in total, there are 35 active women's colleges in the U.S. All male colleges are much less common, but they do exist. Uh, currently, Hamden-Sydney College in Virginia, Morehouse in Atlanta, Wabash College in Indiana, St. John's University in New York. Those are the four active men's colleges in the U.S. Um, and a couple of these have actual affiliations with women's colleges. So St. John's is a Catholic institution that's partnered with the College of St. Benedict. Uh, and similarly, Morehouse College is an HBCU in Atlanta, which is located near Spelman College, which is an all-women's HBCU. You. While attending a women's or men's college is certainly not for everyone, a lot of students find that they are more comfortable and more focused and part of a closer knit community when they're surrounded by other students with their same gender identity. Um, specifically, women find that same-sex colleges can offer a college experience that is more specifically catered to their needs, uh, their ambitions, and the obstacles that women face. And they provide more access to leadership and other opportunities that might in another campus be more typically dominated by men.
Uh, the last student body category that you may want to think about um, are HBCUs and HSIs. Uh, these acronyms refer to schools that are predominantly attended by a specific race or ethnicity or culture of student. So an HBCU or a historically black college or university is a school that was founded to educate and elevate the black student population. Um, most of these schools were founded at the conclusion of the Civil War and over a hundred of them still exist, including well-known examples like Howard University, Spelman College, and Florida A&M or FAMU. Uh, black, black students who enroll at HBCUs often report better overall college experiences given the unique sense of community that can be hard to find at predominantly white colleges. Uh, that being said, HBCUs are unfortunately often underfunded, which means financial aid can be a little bit harder to come by. A uh, Hispanic serving institution or an HSI is a college whose student body is more than 25% Hispanic. Uh, these schools often offer social and academic and professional supports that are geared specifically towards Latinx students and may receive additional federal funding to do so. Uh, the number of HSIs in the US has grown significantly over the past few decades and today more than 500 colleges have this designation. Uh, if you're a Hispanic student for whom cultural community and culturally specific supports are important adding schools to your list with this HSI de designation might be a good idea. Um, and the last category is a predominantly white institution or a PWI, which is sort of an unofficial term that is used to describe a college whose student body is majority white. Um, in general, most colleges that aren't HBCUs are often referred to as PWIs. Uh, and that, with that, I'm going to pass it back over to Tasha, who's going to talk about a few more categories of colleges that you may want to consider. Thanks, Carolyn. Yeah, so uh, Carolyn really covered um, covered a lot of categories very, very well and very in depth. So I'm going to go through kind of some bigger picture, higher level categories that might have some overlap with some of the of the different designations that Carolyn discussed uh, and kind of break that down a little bit. So the first is going to be the difference between selective and less selective. And I think that is pretty obvious, um, but I think it is important to think about those differences. So obviously some colleges and universities with lower admission rates are, are naturally gonna be more selective uh, and others uh, with the capacity to have higher admission rates uh, are considered less selective. And then there's everything in between, right? So it's definitely a spectrum uh, and it's important for you know, most students to be considering schools in both categories and in kind of a middle category of, of you know, selective, but not quite as highly selective, uh, just because most students should, or all students should really have a balanced college list, which is something that we discuss at Ivy Wise uh, and that we encourage all students to create. And that means that students are applying to uh, schools throughout that spectrum of less selective and selective. So we usually recommend um, within the realm of three to four uh, highly selective, if that's what you're looking for, which would be a reach um, or a kind of you know goal, then you would have uh, four to five target, which would be in that middle category of that spectrum. And then we would have two to three uh, likelies, which would be um, typically less selective, but they might also still be, um, you know, depending depending on the strength of the student's profile, they might also still be um, a little bit 
more in the middle range of that spectrum of from less selective to selective. And so um, it's important to just think about that higher level category, of course, like within all of those other categories that Carolyn mentioned, um, you're going to have some women's colleges, for example, uh, that either fit that really highly selective category, like some of those that she mentioned within the, the seven sisters group. And then you'll have some others that are a little bit less selective. And so considering where uh, schools and all of those categories fit within this spectrum and this uh, particular less selective to highly selective spectrum is going to be important as you're doing your research and kind of deciding what's important to you um, and creating a balanced college balanced college list, excuse me. Uh, then the other major thing, um, kind of high level category here is location uh, and setting. So obviously uh, all of these different kinds of schools are located in many different kinds of settings. Um, so the first would be a rural setting. Um, this is, you know, I think relatively common, especially uh, when it comes to, well, you know, you have small liberal arts colleges often located in, in smaller rural settings, but also large public universities might be um, located in small towns. And then those towns typically take on a really strong and vibrant college town um, characteristic, which could be something that some students find really um, exciting. Uh, you know, the town is really all about the college and vice versa. Uh, so that is, is certainly an option. Then you have like a suburban setting, which is obviously something a little bit in between. Um, that same can be true for kind of a larger college town where there's um, a little bit more going on beyond the setting of the college, um, you know, larger overall town population, uh, but it isn't quite rural, rural in the way that a rural setting would be. Uh, so if you're looking for something, you know, if you come from the city and you're nervous about being, um, you know, quote unquote, too far out um, in, the, in the middle of, of, of the countryside, then a suburban setting might be like a good in between for you. And then finally, of course, there's the urban option, which is that other extreme from rural. Um, and that's if you want to go to a school located in a city. That said, there are lots of different kinds of, of urban uh, universities or schools located in an urban setting. Uh, so I think that's something really important to consider. If you want to be in a city, uh, you want to definitely visit that school and visit that city since that's going to be a really big part of your experience. But also that some schools located in cities are, are still enclosed or, or still relatively focused campuses um, that might have a quad or a gate or, you know, just a general campus vibe. Whereas other schools located in cities like Boston University, where I worked for several years, is uh, much more spread out. It's still in one general area of the city, but um, it's on a, a major city street. Um, there is a sense of campus and of student life, of course, uh, but it's not quite enclosed like maybe some other um, Boston area schools, like let's say Boston College, uh, which is a little bit further east and does have like a um, a quad and a proper campus campus. Um, so some students prefer one to the other. Some students can go either way and they go visit both schools and really enjoy them. That was just a general example that I'm familiar with. But of course, you have those equivalents in New York City, in Washington, D.C., and in cities across the country in Los Angeles. USC, for example, is also an enclosed campus. Uh, so definitely, you know, if you're interested in an urban setting, go check out um, that city, I think is really important and, and see what's what's important to you. 
another thing that's important to consider uh, with the rural, suburban, or urban um, settings is how that's going to affect your residential experience. So, uh, for example, if you know that you want to live on campus, um, thinking about schools that are able to offer that. So definitely smaller residential colleges that might be located in rural or suburban settings might be able to offer that. Whereas urban settings typically uh, require that you move off campus after a certain point. Um, And that can be the case at large public universities, whether rural, suburban or urban as well. And then finally, another uh, kind of broad scale designation I want to discuss is athletic designation. And so um, here in the U.S., you know, we have large um, athletic conferences and and divisions. And so it's division one, division two and division three are the major NCAA divisions and um, division one being the most competitive and division three being on the other end, still quite competitive, but um, not like this high, high, high level like division one and then division two being a little bit in between. So that said, um, it really varies. I used to think that division one was only at large schools and division three was only at small schools, but that's actually not entirely true. It is maybe pattern tends to be true, but there are some uh, really strong division one programs at smaller schools. And there are some schools that have a little bit of a mix of both with different sports. So for example, um, I know that at Bowdoin College, my alma mater uh, sailing um, is a division one sport and every other sport is division three. And so maybe some specialized sports like that, uh, depending on location or depending on the strength of the program at the school might be played at a different designation or a different division than other sports. If you're considering being um, an athlete in college, just keep in mind that that is a process you're going to want to be thinking about uh, during your application, even before your application process, uh, reaching out to coaches and going through that whole recruitment process as it is a um, very particular process. And um, that said, you know, there are some, some divisions or some, uh, teams that allow for walk-on processes, uh, but that is something that is very specific to each school. So you want to make sure you take a look at that as you're considering athletic designations and divisions in your um, research. So with that, I'm going to ask Krista to um, wrap things up for us. Yeah, so we have covered a lot of information today. And so one big takeaway should be that colleges have overlapping identities. And so when researching colleges, it's important that you figure out what kind of college or university you're interested in attending in terms of location, undergraduate size, if it has a special focus focus or mission, et cetera. So in figuring out what type of college you'd like, you'll be better able to narrow down your college list from the thousands of colleges that are in the US. And then from there, you'll be able to dive deeper into researching colleges that are truly a better fit for you given what you are interested in. So ultimately, you want to make sure that you're choosing to apply to colleges that are a great match for you and where you will be excited to potentially call that place home for your next four years, right? And so with that, that just about wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning in to Just Admit It. Catch up on all of our previous episodes by visiting our podcast page and be sure to bookmark our knowledge base for additional help with navigating the complex and competitive admissions process. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram, and TikTok for more resources. And stay tuned for our next episode in which we'll discuss how parents and educators can support their students while still encouraging independence. Thanks, everyone.